You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode two and they said it wouldn't last. I'm Sarah and I am your host and let's get straight on to it. What's in the briefcase this week? What have we got? Okay, we've got a voluntary assisted dying update and a criminal law practice update. Both very interesting. All right, let's get cracking and kicking off with voluntary assisted dying with Ruthie Jeanne from the QUT Healthful Research Centre. And just a reminder that you can find the full citations to any cases or legislation that we discuss in this episode in the show notes. Hi, Ruthie. How are you? I'm very well, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well myself. Thank you. Tell me what's been happening in the world of VAD or voluntary assisted dying. Lots is happening in the world of VAD at the moment in Queensland. Mm -hmm. So as people might know, Queensland has passed a VAD law, which is due to come into effect on the 1st of January 2023 Um, and Queensland is actually the fifth state to pass FAD laws. So I was going to talk to you today about a case from Victoria Mm. that has some relevance for Queensland. The case is called NTJ and NTJ Human Rights. This is one of only two cases in the whole of Australia that actually examine how a voluntary assisted dying law is working in practice. So what's this one about? This one was about a man from Victoria who wanted to access voluntary assisted dying Mm -hmm. or VAD. The issue here was that in Victoria, like in Queensland, there is a requirement that a person is ordinarily resident in the state for 12 months before they make their first request. The motivation behind that is to prevent what's called suicide tourism. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but the idea that people travel somewhere else to access Bad. Yes. And that happens in Switzerland a lot um, because there's no restriction on it being only available to residents of Switzerland. Right. But in Australia, one of the policy decisions that's been made is to prevent that. So you have to be resident. The issue here was that the man, who's called BTR because it's confidential, it's not open, he was born in Victoria, had lived there for a really long time. But in 2006, he decided to retire do the grey nomad thing that a lot of people do and travelled around with no fixed address for a while. So he'd go off fishing in Queensland and come back to Victoria for a few months at a time, stay with family or in a caravan park. He was travelling around Australia when he became ill and I believe he was diagnosed with cancer and was terminally ill. So one of the other requirements in the bad law is that somebody is within six months of death and that they've received a terminal diagnosis. Uh, if it's a neurodegenerative condition like motor neuron disease, it can be 12 months, but we're really talking about people who have a very advanced illness and who are very sick. So the issue was whether he was actually ordinarily resident in Victoria and the doctor who was assessing him and managing the process uh, found that he was in his assessment and submitted a form saying that he was. How can a doctor confirm that it's tricky isn't it it's sort of asking a doctor to take quite an administrative or legal role yeah um so the person really needs to gather up some documentation to provide to the doctor to assist them with that so things like driver's license or lease agreement or contract for sale things like that okay so the doctor submitted a form saying that the man in this case was an ordinary resident what happened next essentially 
um, the form was reviewed by Safer Care Victoria and they kept requesting further information to prove that he was actually ordinarily resident. But because he didn't have that fixed address, it was really hard. They weren't really getting anywhere and so the doctor decided to um, review his own decision in the Victorian Tribunal. Um, so basically the tri tribunal had to step into his shoes and decide whether this person was actually an ordinary resident of Victoria. Okay, so let's just take it back a step for a sec. What does reviewing your own decision from the doctor's perspective mean? Yeah, so essentially what happens is, uh, and there's similar provisions in the Queensland law, a person who's trying to access voluntary assisted dying or somebody who has a special interest in their medical care or treatment, mm -hmm. they can apply for a review of particular decisions that have been made in the VAD process. Okay. And a decision about ordinary residence is one of those decisions that can be reviewed. Okay. Some can't. Um, the more treatment or medical decisions, they can't be reviewed because we really trust the doctor to make the right decision. Yes. But where it requires, as you sort of pointed out before, a doctor kind of stepping into a different sort of role, mm -hmm. having to make some kind of legal or administrative analysis, that's when the decision can be reviewed by right. VCAT. Okay. And in this instance, the doctor said, look, I don't want the responsibility of this anymore. Can VCAT take it off my shoulders? I think so. I think it was possibly that they'd sort of exhausted all avenues for trying to get that additional information. Right. So I think they really just wanted that to be determined. But I guess also it may be that he did want that responsibility taken off his shoulders. Yeah, yeah, mm. right. Interesting. So what happened? Well, VCAT reviewed the, the circumstances and essentially they did decide, yes, he was ordinarily resident in Victoria. Mm. And they looked at the facts and they really said it's a factual actual matter, so looking at the circumstances of the case, and said his lifestyle as sort of that great, you know, mad traveller, it's not uncommon for people in Australia. That's a very usual circumstance. Mm. Um, the fact that he had family there, the fact that he had his Victorian driver's licence, mm. the fact that he had his car and caravan registered in Victoria, they all pointed to the fact that he was actually based there, right. um, even though he did leave for extended periods of time. So um, that's in Victoria. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for Queensland? The Queensland Voluntary Assisted Dying Act uses the same language. So it uses that language of ordinarily resident in Queensland. So you have to be ordinarily resident for 12 months in Queensland in order to access voluntary assisted dying. Interestingly, Queensland, and in my opinion, um, it's a really good thing, they do have an exemption process as well. Right. So if somebody has a substantial connection to Queensland, and there are compassionate reasons for granting an exemption, they can be granted an exemption to that requirement. Okay. But nevertheless, it's an area where practitioners might be involved in interacting um, with voluntary assisted dying because people who do need to challenge a decision of a doctor, for example, if the doctor finds that they aren't ordinarily resident, might seek that legal advice. And there are provisions similar to the um, Victorian ones where people can apply to QCAT to review a decision like this. Okay, so this may be a silly question, but can you plan to access VAD in the event that you get diagnosed with a terminal illness? One of the really important things about VAD is that the person has to make the request at the time. So you can't make a request in advance. You can't request it in something like an advanced health directive or a statement of choices or something like that. Right. It has to be a, a direct in-person request to your doctor. Any other sort of key takeaways? 
that is probably likely to pop up in a lot of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So it might be something that you don't think that you actually will experience or have to face, but I I think that's probably not the case. I think it will arise in practice quite often. Mm -hmm. Luckily in Queensland, the process I think has been very rigorous in terms of this being legalised. So there's an excellent QLRC report, lots of resources that have been put out to help people understand why particular bits of the law have been drafted in the way that they have. Mm -hmm. Can I ask just a random question before I finish? You are a walking ray of sunshine. (laughs) And so it's quite ironic that our chat today is all around (laughs) voluntary assisted dying. What led you to study this and and want to pursue a PhD in it? Um, first of all, I could say the same about you, Sarah. I think <laughs> you are a ray of sunshine. Um, <laughs> I'm a storm cloud, it's all right. <laughs> I think one of the things that I really like about this area is I feel like there's a real opportunity to contribute to how the law is working in practice. Mm. I think also it's something that I just find really important. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sarah. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Next up is a chat that I recently had with Nick Dorr, Principal of Fisher Dorr, Lawyers and Accredited Specialist in Criminal Law. Now, Nick is an absolute hoot and we ended up talking for quite a while. So I'm going to cut straight to the part of the conversation where we start chatting about the huge difference between the civil and criminal jurisdiction when it comes to negotiating a resolution. The civil jurisdiction and the criminal jurisdiction, they're actually worlds apart. In the civil jurisdiction, when you're going for a monetary compensation or something those sorts of lines, you can send a letter of demand that says, on this day, your client is responsible for these five things. The damages come to $50,000. We'll sell for 30 if you pay right now and no claim will be brought against you or we'll waive our rights in relation to pursuing civil claims. Once it becomes a criminal charge or there's criminal dishonesty in it, it takes it away from that sphere and any offer to try to resolve it can get you charged with an offence, so long as the proviso is, you can only be charged if you say, I will conceal this crime or I won't go to the police or please don't go to the police. It's a pretty tricky area in the sense of it's governed by the criminal code. It's governed by section 133 of the um, criminal code 1899, pretty recent little legislation. (laughs) That's called compounding a crime. So under section 133, and for your listeners, you, you love legislation like we all do, the definition of compounding, compounding an indictable offence, and I'll come back to the indictable bit in a tick, is any person who asks for, receives, or obtains, or agrees, or attempts to receive or obtain any property or benefit of any kind for himself, herself, or other person. Gotta love it. Yeah. This, and this is all one paragraph, team. Yeah. Upon any agreement or understanding that the person will compound or conceal an indictable offence, or will abstain from, discontinue, or delay a prosecution for an indictable offence or withhold any evidence thereof is guilty of an indictable offence. So that's a victim who says to a person, you assaulted me, I will not go to the police if you pay me a certain amount of money. Right. Okay? Yep. So that's so that, that's companion crime. That's hiding hiding a crime. Okay? Yes. You can, and you're companioning the crime but making it worse by not reporting it and receiving a monetary gain for it. So you get in trouble as the victim. Yes, that's right, as the victim. Now, it also goes the other way because if you are the defendant and you then say to the victim, hey, I'll pay you money if you don't go to the police um, or you don't make a complaint, the victim is in trouble. 
if they accept that money. But you are obviously caught under what's called the party provisions of the criminal code where you are a party to that offence. So as we're seeing a lot of at the moment, particularly in big frauds, complainants are trying to recover their money first and then go to the police. Now, those letters need to be very carefully drafted because you can't say, pay the money, we won't go to the police, but certainly a complainant can attempt other means of recovering the money prior to going to the police, so long as there is nothing in the negotiation that says this is in full and final settlement of any proceedings. Yes. Of course, it's not just before somebody goes to the police that you can compound a crime. It's also afterwards when a matter is already proceeding through the criminal justice system. In the criminal law, as there's been an increase in relation to trying to deviate matters into the alternative justice resolution space, mm. there's a lot more negotiating that goes on between complainants and, defend- and defendants yeah, right. in trying to resolve matters. And they're doing it in the family courts, they're doing it everywhere. It just makes more sense saying, look, we're clogging up the courts with stuff. Mm. What is the real impact in relation to this person, first count of an assault, punched his best friend at a party, best friend says, you know, he's a goose, he shouldn't have punched me, but I don't want anything bad to happen to him. But there still needs to be a consequence because it's an offence. Mm. Is there more benefit in therapy in the two parties sitting down meeting and resolving the issues without, you know, Bill is an accounting student who may not be able to get admitted as an accountant yeah, because yeah, of this yeah. assault. So, so it's being pushed that way. So nothing stops two parties trying to mediate, mm-hmm. okay? It's still up to the prosecution to decide at the end of the mediation whether or not they'll continue with a prosecution just because the two parties go, hey, he paid me five grand. Yeah, it's all good. We're pretty happy. Mm. Nick and I then got chatting about how easy it really would be for a practitioner to inadvertently fall into the trap of compounding a crime. To send someone a letter to say, I act on behalf of Billy Bloggs. He is the victim or he is accused of hurting your client. Can we resolve this matter? Can this matter be resolved? You've got to be very, very, very careful in how you draft and structure those letters. And the criminal code does give you defences to that. And the defences are essentially, if you look up the legislation, section 133, subsection five, there's lists four categories. I'm not going to read out more legislation, it's boring. But essentially they've got to be negotiations held in good faith. They've got to be with established legal practice between a lawyer representing the alleged offender and the prosecutor. to get a fair outcome. In criminal law, we negotiate all the time. These provisions are here to protect us from being able to send emails to prosecutors or have communication prosecutors to say, how do we resolve this thing? Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Remember, if you haven't already, to subscribe and share this podcast with all your lawyer friends. Let's close her up. Until next week, I'm Sarah, and this has been The Briefcase.